Hey, this is Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 55 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. On today, we have Shay Ellenham from Mount Royal University, Carrie Kincannon from Oregon State University, and Ryan Sheckle from Texas Tech University, and Melinda Anderson from Nakata, and Craig McGill from Kansas State University guest host. As always, please show this podcast some love and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's episode 55. Hey, advising friends and family, welcome back. And we have a stacked episode for number 55. And I say, let's just dive right in. So let's start with the wonderful Shay Ellingham from Mount Royal University. So let's first welcome back Dr. Melinda Anderson, Executive Director of Nakata. Melinda, welcome back. It is good to be back, Matt. Always good to see your shiny, smiley face. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You're going to have a busy couple weeks. I mean, we're recording this in on March 7th. Uh, this is going to get posted on our middle of March episode. But you are on like some marathon run going through these region conferences. Yes, I am. I'm on that beautiful treadmill. You know, it is spring and that means for Nakata regional conference season. And so I am speaking with you from beautiful Norfolk, Virginia, which uh, many people don't know, but that is also Chesapeake, Virginia is my home. So I do live in Kansas, but I still live in Chesapeake, Virginia. So it's nice to kind of be back in my old stomping grounds, but then also being here doing uh, really good work for Nakata. And so this is region two. And so then I'll be off to um, region one in Mystic, Connecticut, and then to seven next week. And then on my way to see you in region nine in Orange County. So, and I've never been to that part of the woods in California. So I'm really excited to see you, of course, and then to be able to enjoy region nine with you. So are you ready? I am ready. Well, I'll be, I'll I'll put it this, I'll be ready by the time (laughs) we have this conference, but I'm so looking forward to getting to see you again. So uh, just a few few more days, few more days, few more days. And we're both here today so we can interview a really amazing higher education professional. And that is with Shay Ellingham. And Shay's first experience with Nakata started with the 2010 Region Conference in Seattle. And Shay was new to the role of Manager of Academic Advising Services at Mount Royal University and was hungry for professional development in the advising world. And the very next year, she had the privilege of chairing the Region 8 Calgary Conference. And after that, never looked back. In addition to chairing and co-chairing Region 8 conferences, Shay has also had the privilege of working with the Advising Communities Division as the co-chair of the Canadian Advising Community. And in 2017, Shay also became a member of the Region Review Committee, which was asked to undertake the task of surveying members to determine how best to meet the professional development of members and the existing region structure. And as Shay has grown professionally, she took a step forward in her career and moved into the role of the Director of Admissions and Recruitment at MRU. And even though her involvement with advising has changed, she does get to work with an amazing team as they welcome new classes of students to their institution. And academic advising will always be near and dear to Shay, and she will never regret a moment of her volunteer time with Nakata. And when Shay returned to higher education as a mature student, her goal as a single mother of three young children was to finish her undergraduate degree and find a career that would allow her to support her family. 
She quickly realized that she wanted to remain in higher education as a career and earned a Master of Arts degree in communications. She began her career in higher ed as an instructor and enjoyed working with students, inspiring them to achieve their goals. And this led her to the administration side of education. And once she arrived in management roles, she knew that she had found her place and a career that was a great fit for her skills and interests. Shay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much. Hi, Melinda. Really great to be here. And, and uh, you know, listening to you read that bio, it was like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Great. That's a, that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, what we love so much is, you know, just talking um, to Nakata members, but really just getting to know more about the person and their story. Um, and so I'm just really excited, you know, Shay, we connected in the region review work um, that Matt had mentioned in your bio. Um, and so I'm just really curious, um, you know, to, you know, learn more about you on this podcast. And we have some similarities. We both um, have backgrounds in communications and then here we are in higher education, uh, right, in similar fields and tensions. But talk to us a little bit about your path and journey and in, into higher education like, what was that moment for you when you were like, okay, I'm enjoying this? Like, what was that moment for you? Can you talk to us about that? So I, right out of high school, I did a couple of years of higher education and then circumstances changed. I left higher education, focused on building a career a little bit, got married, had my kids. But education was always something that was in the back of my mind of, as sort of an unfinished uh, aspect of my life. And then as I realized that the marriage was ending, it was a good opportunity for me to sort of focus on, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to move forward? Because, you know, this was okay. This was a long time ago, 20 plus years ago. And it was like, high school diploma isn't just going to get me what I need. So I need to go back. I need to go back into school. And, you know, the benefits of being a mature student, when you go back and you've got a little bit of life experience, and I've told this to school to teach to uh, students throughout the years. It's not so bad. It's not as hard. And I found it wasn't as hard as I remembered it coming out of high school, because you have that work ethic. You're able to um, schedule your time in. And I really enjoyed higher education. For me, it was just it was an opportunity to explore new ideas and to think deeply about things and just to sort of engage with material that I hadn't had an opportunity to do in my work life and certainly not as a, as a single parent um, of three little kids. So it was, it was really sort of a, a great opportunity to focus on me, get a little bit of self-development in there and, and find my own self, right. Find out who I was and what I wanted to accomplish in my, in my life. Right. Right. And so you finished your degree, you're moving forward. And then you said it's higher education. What was your first position? Was it directly into academic advising more so immediately? Uh, no, actually, my first I had to think for a moment. That's why I'm scratching the brain here a bit. It was like, no, uh, while I was doing my master's degree, one of a colleague of mine who was in the master's program talked to me about that she was teaching at, uh, at DeVry. And uh, we had DeVry Institute of Technology here in Calgary. And, and she was telling me about her experiences there. And I was like, I could do that. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. Actually, I contacted Dubai and I started teaching. And that was my first gig into higher education while I was still in my master's degree. And I thought, oh, I should get my Ph.D. and I'm going to be a professor. 
Mm. Um, but then while I was teaching at DeVry, another opportunity came up uh, where they were actually looking for an associate dean. And I did, I could do that. Do that. So, and that's what I did. So, you know, anytime anybody's just sort of put a challenge in front of me, this, this I know about myself. There's a challenge out there and I go, I could do that. That's, that's kind of where I, I follow my, my path. So teaching first, then administration. So. Wow. So then you got bit by the admin bug. I love that. I just wrote that down. I can do that. Well, that's a very powerful testament. You know, when people think, can I go back? You know, is it too late? You know, can I, um, do something different, right? Which is, I think a lot of people have been asking themselves, you know, with the pandemic, you know, is this really what I want? And I tell people, yeah, you can, it's not too late, right? If you're asking yourself those questions, it's for a very important reason. So thank you so much for sharing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. My pleasure. It's true. You can reinvent yourself. And I think you're right. I agree 100% through this pandemic. People are doing that all over the place. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're seeing that like all over, just like you're saying. And it's something where, you know, we have different interests. And, you know, we like you're saying, you had various opportunities you were able to explore and kind of see what fits, what's something that you can see yourself doing. And if that means that we reinvent ourselves or change every few years. I mean, then that that's part of it. Right. Yeah. And a couple of things is, you know, you also, you know, you, when you were, you were in a manager role, you were the manager of academic advising services and then moved on to the director position for admissions and recruitment. Can you talk about both those roles, like what those entailed and, and kind of what led you to the admission side? Sure. I'd love to. So academic advising in, in Canada is somewhat different in, in a lot of places, although we're seeing a bit of a shift now, where there's not a lot of upward movement, it's almost like you get into a manager role and there doesn't, it depends on institution wise, but I certainly at Mount Royal, there, there just wasn't a, a place to go further unless I did do that academic side of things, like go into the, back into the academic side of the house. But um, at Mount Royal, academic advising services, we're sort of a, a hybrid model where we had some centralized advising, some decentralized advising. So I had a small subset of the advising community reporting directly to me as the manager, um, but also had a larger mandate to sort of serve the community-wide community with, with sort of that professional development aspect of things. And I was so fortunate when I came into this role to have the opportunity to get connected with Nakata because it really for me, sort of provided an opportunity to sort of grow that professional development on our campus and um, take advantage of all of the great things that Nakata was doing and and sort of become that mediary, intermediary sort of saying, look, this is this is open to everybody. You can you can all do this. This is a wonderful opportunity. But after about, you know, a decade of doing that, realizing that 
you know, there was things that I wanted to do, things I wanted to explore and, and um, not a lot of opportunities to go higher in the advising only field. This opportunity came up um, when my good friend um, who was in this position of director of admissions and recruitment, when she was going to retire. And then that whole thing came along and Shay was like, I could do that. So it was kind of one of these things where I'm like, I don't know if, if I, if this is, a natural progression, but it certainly was an opportunity that I thought I could challenge myself. I could get into a little bit of a different um, aspect of the student life cycle and the applicant funnel and sort of expand. So recruitment to me has been sort of the biggest learning since I haven't been doing a lot of that. Admission stuff I I, I knew, but the recruitment uh, area was certainly a big growth opportunity for me, which I, I'm thoroughly enjoying. So. Right. Well, I love the way that you talked about it being the student life cycle, because um, as um, in my previous role to this one, I was in enrollment um, functions as well. And it is wonderful, right, to have that perspective, I think is probably the best way to say it. When you think about the life cycle of a student from the recruitment, being admitted, and then coming into that advising and then registration transitional process, right? Whether it's first year or transfer students, how, how do you think that that vantage point uh, has, it's, it's going to help you when you think broadly about that student life cycle? That's a great question, Melin, because it's certainly one that we've been looking at. So I have a very brand new team. So not only did I come into this position brand new, but I have a, brand new manager of admissions because the other manager of admissions retired. So we sort of had a real shift in our whole department. Mm. And it's really uh, good for us to sort of re-examine what we want to accomplish Mm. and how we want to um, look at the students we're bringing in and and sort of some of the policies we have in place. So I think I'm always, when when I get these emails from applicants who are like, wanting an exception or looking for some more information that advising hat comes on and it's like okay how can I how can I support you as an individual you're not just an application number in the cycle you're not just another applicant in the funnel what can I do to help you so that's really been um, a good opportunity for me to sort of see things from from that perspective Um, and you know I won't be able to help everybody I know that it's just not going to be that easy, but, but that advising heart is there. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for um, connecting those dots because it is just, you're always that heart of the advisor is just, it doesn't matter where you kind of go in the student life cycle. You know, I always, I always think that it's, it's always there. So thank you for sharing that. There's always an impact no matter what level you're at. And yeah. so, yeah, like whether it's that one touch point of a student sending an email, just wanting to know what the admission requirements are, or just reviewing their transcript with them, or even once they get accepted, and then, yeah, then they get to meet, maybe meet with their advisor or their department. There's always someone along the way that's going to hopefully be able to connect with them. Exactly. No, that's a good point. You know, I was just wanting to know a little bit more about um, your institution, Mount Royal, and the kind of students that you serve. If you could just talk a little bit about that um, for the audience, because I know many of us are listening might be, you know, in the U.S. and wanting to know a little bit more about um, institutions in Canada. Happy to chat about that. So Mount Royal is an undergraduate university and 
within the landscape of the province of Alberta where we are, there's only two undergraduate universities focused so that we don't offer any graduate programs. Um, we have other polytechnics that they will do a little bit of a different focus, but our, our major um, uh, offering, we have undergraduate degrees in arts and science and health and community studies and education. We have some professional programs in nursing and midwifery uh, and aviation diploma actually um, and social work. But for the most part, the students that are coming here but, well, actually, we became a university in 2009, and before that, we were a college. Mm. So we have a very long legacy, 100-year legacy of being a college where people would come to start their degree and, and maybe finish a diploma, but then go on to another institution in order to complete their degree. So when we became a university in uh, 2009, we, we really had to focus and shift on educating the community around us that Mount Royal was not only a good place to start, but mm. it was also a good place to finish, mm. finish their degree. But still undergraduate focused, we won't necessarily um, expand into graduate programs at all. That's not sort of an area of focus for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so having done that and having sort of staked out that territory, we also want to focus on the student experience and making the student experience at Mount Royal the best it can possibly be for students who come here. I mean, we do have students that come here and never leave. They come here, they get their degree, then they start working at the institution and they become sort of those cheerleaders that we've, we've grown on our own, right? Just because of their experience here at Mount Royal has been great. Um, we're a largely also a commuter campus, so a lot of our students are in and from in and around the Calgary area and in southern Alberta. But one of the things that I've, I've started to do through recruitment now that uh, I'm in the position is we're sort of expanding more nationally and trying to recruit students from across the country um, and internationally as well. We're going to grow that as well. But uh, but yeah, we want to we want to celebrate Mount Royal across across this great country of Canada that we have. Wow, that's wonderful. So you're coming into this space of really having people think differently about um, how you are positioning yourself in the marketplace. And so that, I mean, for me, I feel like that's exciting. I don't know if you feel like that's exciting, Shay, because you're changing hearts and minds and you're shifting culture, right? Um, when you think about shifting yourself in the marketplace, but from um, a heart of an advisor, and then you put on the hat of an enrollment manager, you're just sharing the goodness and the quality and the value of an education at your institution that you know is going to change the way that people operate in the world um, and, and, and who they become in the world. And so that's always good news that you want to share. So I'm very excited to hear that for you and your institution. So I'm going to be cheering you on. I'm going to have to come check out your your, your campus and, and spread the good news and wear T-shirts and do all that good stuff. You're welcome. You're welcome to come anytime, Melinda. <laughs> awesome. And one of the other things at Mount Royal that, that your your institution does is you, you were also quoted in an article that was titled Work Integrated Learning Opportunities Prepare Career-Bound Graduates. And so, yeah, so it talked about how with Mount Royal University, like a key piece is the industry relevant experience as part of the undergraduate journey. Uh, can you talk more about that? Sure. Thanks, Matt. You've been doing your homework. I like that. That's great. So one of the focus um, 
or a major focus of our government. So in Canada, education is funded provincially. So we get our, a, lot, a large part of our funding from our provincial governments. And, um, and that's for publicly funded education. Um, private for-profit or private education is, is very rare in Canada. So we're very tied to sort of government initiatives and wherever they're their focus is and work integrated learning has certainly been a focus of our government here over the last couple of years and they really want to expand those opportunities for students to come to a higher education institution and then get some real world skills that they can take with them into the workplace afterwards and um, even before this as a focus a lot of our programs have had internships and co-op programs so we have um, opportunities for our students to take their education and add in that that working um, aspect of things. Um, and that's definitely uh, a key area of growth for Mount Royal. So in many of our degrees, and I think almost all of them, uh, we have that opportunity for students to explore a co-op or a work integrated learning experience. So one of the key f aspects of our education degree is our education students, they come into their first year of education they are in the classroom in their first year. And in a lot of institutions, that doesn't necessarily happen to your third or fourth year before you get into the classroom. But we want students to have that experience early on. We have, um, and of course, our, our nursing and midwifery practices are certainly in clinical experiences right out, right out of the gate because they want we want them to have that experience so that they know it's going to be a good fit for them early on rather than waiting till they're almost graduating and then realizing, yeah, I'm not cut out for this kind of work. So um, that that's one of the things that we like to celebrate uh, at, at Mount Royal is the fact that you can get your your education, your four year degree, but you're also allowing and having the opportunity to explore sort of those real world real world applications of of, the, of your skills. Yeah, I wish more schools uh, had something like this uh, because just like you're saying, like you can get to your junior, senior year, and then be like, yeah, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And now I'm really struggling with these classes. And I don't see myself utilizing this degree after I graduate. So um, and in that article, too, like you were quoted as saying that these activities not only help with preparing for the future, but they make the educational journey meaningful to a student's life. And everything's all about connecting engagement. And this is a perfect way of doing that. It's true. I mean, we I, I've really like to promote the um, way that students can personalize or customize their degree. And it's not only with work integrated learning opportunities, it's also with adding a minor. It's also with making the most of your, your liberal uh, arts education and finding courses that really speak to the individual, right? It's mm -hmm. not just a checkbox. It's not just a fill in the blank, get your degree. It's a, what does this mean? How is this gonna be meaningful to you? So we, we really try to promote that. Absolutely. Oh, that makes my heart so happy. I have that uh, conversations, you know, even, you know, when I'm not right, technically, quote unquote, in the office, just talking to friends when they're thinking about career changes and, and what, you know, what's next for me or what does this look like? You know, the idea of, you know, we're all always learning and growing and thinking differently. And when I uh, worked at a previous institution that was liberal arts uh, focused, you know, majors and careers aren't linear, right? So how are you thinking and learning and and um, acquiring knowledge that helps shape 
the, your lenses, thinking about that way. And so even as professionals, we should be thinking the same thing. And so that takes us into like our next question about how did you discover Nakata? You know, when you think about professional development opportunities and growth and development, how did you first come to know about Nakata, Shay? Uh, well, when I was, I had applied for the manager of academic advising services at Mount Royal, I was moving in from uh, another institution in the city and I was a department chair, actually. So, and in that experience, I really got um, introduced to the idea of advising and working with students in that first year experience. But, and then when I wanted to move into this manager position, I was doing my homework, checking out professional development, checking out, you know, professional associations. I came across Nakata and then um, was, was really happy to find that information and be able to utilize that information as I moved into this role. Um, and I think I started my job here at Mount Royal in September and the conference was in January and things happened so fast because at that conference in January, I said, yep, I'll be a conference chair. No problem. I can do that. It's coming to Calgary. So it was just kind of a whirlwind. It was just kind of jump in with both feet. And, um, it was, it was really a, a good opportunity for me to sort of see another world that I hadn't been exposed to before. And it was it was great. It was really good. It was kind of like feeding me uh, from what I knew was out there and what I needed and what I wanted to get from that, you know, engaging with the student experience and, and meeting students where they're at. So, so it was really fortuitous in that way. Serendipitous almost. Right. Right. So you jumped in with both feet and so you led a, a conference. And so what have your, your other roles have been in uh, Nagata? So, after the uh, conference in 2011, I joined the steering committee um, as the, uh, one of the Alberta liaisons and, and really st- wanted to focus firstly on growing Nakata across the, um, in, within the province of Alberta. So jumped in by starting to do annual advising symposia where we could really promote the value of advising across the province and invite um, people to come in and start honing their skills so that they could do conference proposals and then feel like they could uh, participate more meaningfully at the region level. Um, and that was that was a good opportunity, good learning, and it was a great opportunity to network with. I've met some wonderful people across the, the province. And then as I my time finished on the steering committee, because at that time you could only do two years of two terms of two years, and then I was looking for something else. Um, and had an opportunity to connect with some individuals across the country and the uh, advising community um, for Canadian advising community became an opportunity there. So I jumped in with that and started to network more um, nationally rather than just sort of staying within our region, did that national networking, got an opportunity to present at the Region 5 conference in Toronto, um, had a really good experience with that and um, met some more people. And then the advising community was was really a, a lot of fun. We, it was a lot of fun. We actually also um, did a pan-Canadian survey of advising just to find out what advising looks like across this country and um, to find out what those shifts and what those differences are, because those are there are regional differences based on um, and uh, education systems and the way they, they work in this country. So that was that was a lot of fun. And then I think that was what led me to the region review. You know, uh, somebody 
tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think this would be a good fit for you. And I said, I can do that. So, <laughs> you know, um, and that was, that was, that was a lot of fun as well, because it was great to get involved in, and just help promote what is going on in Canada and sort of bring that to the table. Uh, I thought it was really important because, you know, Canadians typically, I th and I'm just going to make a generalized statement here. I think we tend to not sort of stand up and celebrate our own accomplishments and the fact that we have value to add. And I thought that, you know, it was important that we we start to do that. We can take our place at the table as well and um, and become that sort of that full partner. So maybe that's a little bit. I'm not sure what that is, but that's the, the Canadian way. But, you know, we're, we, we kind of just sit back and say sorry a lot. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I just love the, you know, your the way that you kind of spoke about how your experiences kind of started, you know, regionally. You took advantage of opportunities as they became available. Uh, and then as you started growing your network and met other members, whether they were in an advising community or still within the region, then from, you know, a Canadian perspective, you know, your network just continued to expand. And then when you're on the region review, it's because people knew how dedicated and committed you were to be thinking about uh, these issues differently and from different perspectives because you had been in, in different areas of Nakata, right, to have different lenses in terms of how you were thinking through, well, what would this look like if we were to expand regions and what would this look like if you were in an advising community versus in a regional setting? Um, so just thank you for, for sharing how that continued to grow uh, because I think that when you think about Nakata leaders or members and they're saying, how do I get involved? How does it get started? I think it's really good to always hear about people's pathways um, because they're so different and so varied. And they usually start with, you know, maybe where you are or what you care about mostly. And then it starts to expand based on how you know people and what other things you become interested in. So I just always love listening to Pathways and Nakata, especially around uh, leadership. So thank you so much for sharing that, Shay. Oh, my pleasure. Now, both of you met each other while you were part of the region review? Yes, that's the first time that I mentioned. Like I, I kept hearing her name. Like, oh yeah, Shay, she's in Canada. That's that would be like Shay, she's in Canada. It'd always be like that. It wouldn't be just like Shay. It'd be like Shay. Yeah, that's right. She's in Canada. So then I was like, when I first met her, I was like, hey, because I was uh, in the region division rep with Nicole Kent, and Nicole Kent is in Region Eight, and so um, they have provinces in Region Eight, and. So it's just because um, when you think about like where the regions, um, some of them overlap into Canada. And so it's always a beautiful experience when some of your regions overlap into different spaces like, you know, fours in the Caribbean. Um, and so when you talk to different region chairs, you know, it's wonderful to kind of hear the things that they're thinking about. Because I have well, when I was region two, I had the District of Columbia mm -hmm. and then the Commonwealth of Virginia and then I had states. And so I was always talking about like, you know, in DC is representation now, you know, and then, you know, you're always talking about kind of what other things people are, are struggling with. Um, but it was just so wonderful to meet her across that table and think of through, you know, concerns in the region about how professional development is being delivered. Because um, as we grew, 
you know, how do you continue to do that well when you're saying that you're global? And so that was the question we had before us. So it was a lot of work, right, Shay? Oh, it was. And there was a lot of laughing, even some crying around that table. It was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was an education. That was, that was such an education to be involved in that product project. And I was so thankful to have had that opportunity um, because it actually was my first um, opportunity to have really meaningful work that was done in a remote setting, like it, we because we were coming from all different areas uh, mm-hmm. of the country and of the of North America, of the world, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a really good way for us to sort of have that experience to connect with each other in an authentic way when we weren't already always in the same room around the same table. Um, and true. that was such a good education, such good preparation for that, our pandemic experience. Like I'm telling you, it was, yeah. That's a good point. point. That is a good point because we were already operating that way yeah. and using Google Docs and being on Zoom and planning to meet in one central location to do that to do that work. And that work continues on today because now it's led to a structural review that the board approved to be thinking about how do we structure and organize ourselves in order to manage the growth and to embrace our global uh, mission for Nakata. So it's so good to kind of see that what you've done is continuing to live on and it's going to be impactful for those who are going to come behind you. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going back to, you were talking about the reach review, both of you met as part of that. So you had this reach review committee, you talked a little bit about, I think people can put the pieces together of like what exactly the reach review does, but could you talk a little bit more about how the reach review came about? um, What are some of the goals of the region review and Yeah, just so listeners have a better idea, because they hear committee and maybe they're like, well, how do I even get a part of that? Right, right. So, you know, so I'll I'll start, Shay, and then definitely for you to to fill in. But at the time um, when I was uh, region division rep uh, with Nicole Kent, the board of directors had charged the regional division with uh, reviewing um, the region division to... Uh, understand um, more broadly how professional development was being um, delivered in the region division. So at that time, you know, we have three divisions in Nakata. You have the regional division, you have the administrative division, and you had um, the advising communities division that had just went through a review. So they had charged the region division with reviewing our um our particular area. And so in reviewing the region division, we really wanted to understand how professional development um, was being delivered through all 10 regions. And when you think about the idea that we are a global organization, we had been asked, you know, not specifically for why we were reviewing, but how are we regionally affiliated if we're not covering the globe, right? Mm-hmm. So that was one of the subtexts, but really the board was like, please evaluate how professional development is being delivered in the regional setting. And so it launched our work and it actually ended up being like a really, like a almost a three-year project really, because um, Nicole, um, you know, and I both were doing that for two years 
And then I went to the board and we were still working on it. <laughs> and, um, and so just really like what Shay was talking about, I think the beauty of the work is that it was a committee that looked broadly at who was invested in this work. So we looked at people who were on the professional development committee. Um, we looked at people who were sitting in different regional spaces. And so because Shay being in Canada definitely wanted to have um, uh, a Canadian perspective on this work. Mebesh Ali was sitting in uh, the Middle East and so wanting to have uh, another global perspective of somebody who's not sitting uh, within the U.S. And so we just had different um, folks that were bringing different um, perspectives to doing this work. And we put together a survey, launched the survey, did focus groups, um, and it was very well done, I think, in terms of the way that it was not just quantitative, but qualitative um, feedback that we got from the membership. And then we did an analysis and then presented the findings to the board. But Shay, is there, you know? You know, it did turn into a longer project than I think any any of us thought it might when we first agreed to participate. But I'm so glad that we did that work because I think we gave members across the globe an opportunity to participate and engage and give us their understanding, give us their experiences, right? How are you seeking? How do you get your professional development from Nakata? You know, and what is meaningful to you? And I think that was the most important um, mm -hmm. thing that we could do is just hear right from the members about what was what they wanted from the association. And I think it's a good foundation for us now as we go into looking at a structural review and finding out what, how do we want to take that information and grow the association, especially coming out of the pandemic. I think we've seen a lot of, I, I think we had to see a lot of shrinking as far as what we were able to do during those most challenging months and, and years, like whoever thought that it was going to be years instead of months. And then, and then now that the world is opening up again, what does that look like? And what is, what is our, plan for going ahead. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a powerful point. You know, it's we really wanted to make sure that everybody that could participate did participate. And then after that analysis, it was what are the implications um, for the information we, we received and then recommendations to the board and council. What are the implications of these changes? And so there was an implementation phase. And so now that's what the board and council are currently working through. Um, so, for example, if we were to implement this new structure, right, what is the impact on finances? What is the impact on organizational structure? What is the impact on positions when you think about how a an, an, uh, nonprofit operates? You know, so so now it's working its way up the you know, in terms of like, okay, so now the rubber meets the road. And so now we're in a structural review. And so that's exactly where that information should be going. So you're absolutely right, Shay. So it's, it was a labor of love is what we kept calling it because it kept evolving to, if we're going to do it right, let's do it right. Because we care about this association and Nakata is supposed to be, it's supposed to grow and live beyond us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what the goal of, of, of any work that you do, um, is that is what you want, and so it's it's so it's it's it took legs, and now it's taking flight. So it's it's pretty cool to watch um, because it means so much.
to a lot of us when you talk to people about when they first get involved with Nakata. And I loved your 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 bio, you know, Shay, about you just this is home. You know, it just becomes like, oh my gosh, I found my place. And then you grow and it and it just takes flight in your heart in a way that, you know, you're always willing to volunteer and, and, and to give your time and talent and energy. So much like you, Matt, doing these podcasts. <laughs> we're, we're trying. We're trying. We need to turn around and interview you one day. Ooh, that Maybe. would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun, right? I'm better at asking the questions than, than giving an answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Shay, I did want to talk about, uh, you know, can, it's almost like, you know, there's the saying that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And mm-hmm. so there is an article that you wrote in 2003, and that was like the Internet Lifestyles, uh, Teens and mm-hmm. Online Experience. <laughs> and in that one, you know, you talked about how teens have the ability to connect in various ways. So innovative ways, they're very creative. Uh, the computer was a tool and now really at that time when you wrote it, isn't a tool. Um, and that it gives a way to interact with the outside world. And I was just thinking that is essentially how things still are. And mm-hmm. even more so, do you remember like what got you interested in, like, I let me write, write an article about this? Yeah. Well, actually that's my master's thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it was pre-Facebook. Like, I'm just going to set that foundation pre-Facebook and looking at ways of, so the, the basis of that research was basically on how uh, users adopt technology and make it fit their lives rather than how the technology changes and how people change the technology, right? So from that perspective, I was looking at how teenagers were using one very specific tool, MSN Messenger, Right. This, remember, this is pre-Facebook. I have to always situate that. So they were using it and how they were using that as part of their exploring their identity and exploring who they were and how they were interacting with their friends and how they were interacting all over the Internet at that particular time and using it as a, uh, you know, an exploration. Right. So um, so that was that was basically the foundation of of. Um, a lot of my research and in sort of communications and how that evolved, I think, more along the lines of how I was teaching. I was teaching courses on how um, computer information technologies, how it shapes society, how it shapes us. And but again, firmly rooted in the idea of how the people are using the technology. And I never could have predicted almost 20 years later how that has changed the fabric of you know, social media and and how that's really changed how we see the world, how we interact with the world, how that delivers our information to us and how we can be so self-selective about what we hear about the world through our social media platform. So it's, uh, it's been a journey. It's, it's hard to believe, but yeah, all of those, uh, that early work was so, so um, enlightening and, and just sort of to see how it's unfolded. I'm always, I've always sort of maintained that critical theorist lens of media and sort of that idea of like, yeah, you just don't take things at face value, right? You have to do the work to become that critical thinker to actually say, hmm, does that, does that sound right? You know, especially over this, the last two years of the, of the pandemic and all of the news that we've been seeing is like, hmm, I don't know. I don't think that rings true. I'm going to do a little bit more research on that. Yeah, and it reminds me of um, 
critical information literacy. So I remember seeing like years ago, just seeing kind of the cycle of information and when, where it first starts and how it might be on the news or social media. But then as research happens, then that's where, you know, you have the publications that come out. But a lot of that takes time. Mm-hmm. And many people move on from I just saw the post on social media or I heard it on the news. And if there was a retraction or some correction, that's usually on the back page of a newspaper for those that still get a paper newspaper. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's a little asterisk at the bottom of an article, like weeks or months or even years after. Right. It's true. And the news life cycle now, we know. I mean, my goodness, there's if you're not on top of the news right that quickly, you're going to miss it. So and I think that's why we see a lot of those uh, that information come out that maybe isn't as well researched as we're used to in the past. Us of a certain age. Right. It, it just changes. It changes so quickly. Uh, agreed. And when I you know, I talked earlier, Shay, about our backgrounds being communications you know, I just remember training about what was real sources for news. And now that's evolved, right? You know, it has, because it's become who can get you the news the fastest, you know, um, it's not this idea that only these people can bring you real sourced news. Uh, But you're right, it is up to, you um, who's receiving the news, mm-hmm. right, to continue with that critical lens of, does this make sense? How is this possible? Can I corroborate it with other sources? And we forget that, right? Because then we want to carry the news fast to our friends and we want to post about it and tweet about it and all this other stuff. And did you believe it? And um, and so it's something that we all need to be uh, cognizant of, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of that, that critical lens um, when we think about what it is that we're hearing and even seeing sometimes, right? Because I don't know about you, but I've been hearing a lot about filters. Mm. And I was completely shocked about what filters can do for, you know, um, re-imaging video. And because I've always been asking for a Beyonce filter, you know, and people <laughs> always ask me, but now I know that that's probably a possibility in the very coming weeks, you know, and uh, all I know is, is let me know about when Beyonce's filter gets uh, released because I'd like that. But that's that's real thing. And you have, you know, kids, you know, thinking that that's what they need to look like. But nobody can look like that, you know, because right. it's a filter. So it's kind of scary. You have to be critically aware about what what can and cannot happen and what's real and what's not real. And that's the I think that's the power of higher education. Melinda, it's 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 teaching, educating the students to sort of have that critical lens, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what keeps me coming back in higher education is the fact that that's the work that we're doing, right? Yeah. There's opportunity for um, disagreement and exploration of ideas. That's completely fine, right? But it's also having that critical view of things and sort of being able to evaluate, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. You couldn't have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) And as we wind down with with the interview, um, you know, we've talked a lot about higher ed, your path in higher ed, your involvement in Nakata, you know, being director. So busy, busy schedule. But what is Shay doing outside of higher ed? What kind of interests do you have? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? 
Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. You know, Matt, I saw that question as I was looking, prepping yesterday. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that's the one. That's the question that always gets me. It's, okay, so I do have four grandchildren. Uh, at the time of taping, they are ages four, five, six, and seven. Very lucky. They all live in the same city. I get to see them quite a bit. So I'm very engaged to grandma, which is lovely. And um, so they take up a lot of my time outside of outside of work. It's, it's, it's mostly family. And I think that uh, coming through these last couple of years, it was, it was a tough couple of years. And both my, my daughters are single moms. So I became sort of the extension of support for both of them. Happy to do it. I mean, I was a single mom too. So I know how important that is to just have that other um, support network, right? So, um, and, uh, and so that that's a, I feel is a great investment of my time in, you know, loving and nurturing and mentoring my grandchildren who are, it's so much more fun to have grandchildren than children. I'm just going to say that it is so much more fun. Mm -hmm. um, they're a delight and they do keep me, they keep me young and they keep me um, hopeful for the future. Actually, it, uh, it is lovely to see. I mean, we have, we have no shortage of distressing news that we can see every day but being able to work with young children and it does give me hope for the future and and uh um which is lovely so outside of outside of work it's family it's 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 mostly family so beautiful wonderful and if anyone has any questions or wants to connect with you what's the best way for them to reach you well the best way to reach me you could reach me through uh linkedin or you could reach me. I'm not so much on Twitter anymore because it just makes my head hurt trying to keep track of everything. Um, you could also just reach me at Mount Royal University in, the, in our directory. I'm happy to. Or Nakata. There's, there's, you can get all of me through Nakata. I'm here and I would love to uh, chat with people. In fact, that has happened over the last couple of years where I've had people reach out and ask sort of those mentorship type questions about advising and getting involved with advising. And, and a few of those folks do stay in touch, which is lovely. So um, yeah, I'm definitely available and, and happy to, to chat with people um, about anything related to higher education, not just advising. So, Wonderful. and in fact, I do get that as well. People are like, um, my daughter doesn't know what to do. She's sick. And I'm like, come on, let's have a coffee. We'll get exactly. it out. <laughs> Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Shay, for spending some time with Matt and myself. It was wonderful learning more about you. This has been fun. This has been a lot of fun. Felt good. So it was a good conversation. It was great to get to know both of you and spend some time with some of my favorite Nakata people. Yes, hey, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Shay. You have such an impactful story getting into higher ed and finding your passion. 
And I appreciate hearing about your transition into admissions and your dedication to advising and to Nakata. And of course, thank you as always, Melinda, for being a guest host and making time to join today. Next up is Carrie Kincannon from Oregon State University. So we're jumping on to our next interview. But before we introduce our guests, let's welcome back past guest and past guest host. And that's Dr. Craig McGill from Kansas State University. Craig, how are you? Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you back. And we get to chat with someone I think many people know and love, and that's Carrie Kincannon. Carrie has been an academic advisor since 1999 and has served as the director and head advisor of the University Exploratory Studies Program at Oregon State University since 2004. He earned his bachelor's degree in English from Wayne State College and MA in English from Ball State University and EDM in College Student Services Administration from Oregon State. Prior to his work in advising at Oregon State, he taught writing and literature at a community college and worked with faculty development programs. Carrie has been in Nakata, the global community for academic advising since 2000. He has served at the regional level as Oregon liaison to the Region 8 steering community. At the association level, he has served as awards committee chair and administrative division representative. He wrapped up a three-year term on Nakata's board of directors in October 2019. He currently is serving as a mentor in Nakata's Emerging Leaders Program, is part of the Sustainable Leadership Committee, and is serving on the editorial review team for the Nakata Review. Within the field of academic advising, he is specifically interested in advising philosophy, theory, and history, advising undecided and exploratory students, first-year college student transitions, and advisors as agents of social justice. Kerry also has the good fortune to work with graduate students in higher ed. He is an adjunct faculty member and advisor for the College Student Services Administration Master's Degree Program at Oregon State. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate you having me here. Carrie, my fellow Nebraskan here. Uh, hey. Let's uh, let's work that in, our uh, Husker nation. Uh, we heard a little bit about it in, our bi- in your bio, but can you tell us about your journey into higher education and then specifically what led you to advising? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so go Huskers. Thanks for that, Craig. I appreciate that uh, Nebraska call out. Um, so yeah, that's that's actually where I started my higher, higher ed journey. You know, I grew up in Nebraska and went to a small state school there. And, uh, you know, uh, I think my initial path was I thought, I'm going to be a professor, I'm going to be a literature and writing professor and go down that road, which is what led to the master's degree in English. Um, and uh, while I was taking a break from school, while my I was tag teaming this with my wife. She was in graduate school in, in library science. I was teaching at a community college and uh, had this really interesting experience. You know, I was working with these students and really enjoyed teaching. Uh, but in the world of writing, um, you, uh, you do a lot of conferencing, right? A lot of one-on-one conversations with students. And I was finding that that was like the most compelling part of my job. And I'd get into these situations where I was conferencing with students about their writing and we'd inevitably be talking about other things. We'd be talking about their lives and what they were doing with their other classes and their journeys. And I, I find that, found that really interesting. And when I started to set that up against the prospect of going on and, and getting the, the doctorate in literature, I, I just didn't have a driving passion towards any particular like topic in that area, even though I liked all that stuff. 
but I really was energized by the engagement with students one-on-one and the teaching and learning that was happening in those one-on-one settings. So I started thinking about um, advising as a possibility, throwing my hat out there for possible jobs and things like that, not really getting uh, many bites. And that's what uh, led me to go back and get the the second master's degree in college student services administration. And just had the really great fortune of landing my graduate assistant position in the the unit where I'm currently <laughs> like the director and head advisor um, and and really found this uh, this uh, passion and drive and calling for working with uh, undecided exploratory students um, I have kind of a short attention span and so the the <laughs> the ability that every student comes in their you know their journey and their interests and their values and their their pathway is so unique and I get to vicariously learn about all these different topic areas across the campus it, it's really connected well with me so yeah that's that's how I got here and that's uh you know uh, been a really fortunate sort of uh, lucky experience for me in the sense of um, maybe not what I started out planning to do, uh, but definitely uh, something that I've really connected with. Yeah. I don't know if anyone where we decided when we were in college, I just want, I want to go into academic advising and kind of fell into it or learned about it later. And you were mentioning, you know, that you're the director and head advisor of the University Exploratory Studies Program. What does that entail? What's your, what's your day-to-day like? Yeah. So um, just a little more context around the unit. I think a, a lot of advisors are fr- familiar with this, but we're we're a targeted program for students who come into the institution, not sure what they want to pursue as far as a major goes, or students who start in a major and realize, oh my gosh, this isn't the right fit, and I want to redirect, and I need uh, a safe space to do that, to be a free agent for a little bit. And so what we do is we try to provide that. So, uh, you know, my day-to-day is, is largely uh, consumed with sort of coordinating this unit, overseeing a team of advisors. And of late, we've been a little lean staff-wise, so I've done quite a bit of actual academic advising, which isn't the worst thing in the world. I, I really enjoy that. But uh, yeah, so, so meeting with a lot of, a lot of students and, uh, you know, trying to be good company as they, they figure out um, – a match, you know, what's going to, what's going to work for them, what again fits with their interests and their values and their abilities and, and, and where, where they can land and, and, and have a, have a fruitful journey. On just a personal level, I don't think I realized that uh, we were both English majors too. Um, And, and I didn't realize your undergrad was Wayne State. Uh, Both my dad and my brother attended Wayne State. Neither of them graduated from there, but I have a cousin who graduated from there my dad's from a small town, Wisner, about 45 minutes. Know it well. <laughs> Pretty crazy. <laughs> yes. I think, I, I think I've mentioned to Craig before that, you know, I always think of him when I, uh, I'm driving to Lincoln or, or somewhere in there and, and see, the, see the, you know, the signs to your hometown and so on. So we've got, we've got a lot of shared, uh, shared roads traveled, I believe. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, can you like, uh, talk to us about, um, uh, what is exploring for? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wrestled with for a long time and, 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 you know, for those of you out there or anyone who's worked with exploring students, there's sort of varying schools of thought around time limits, right? You know, how long, um, is, 
should there be them? <laughs> should there be time limits? You know, and and if so, how long uh, should they exist? Um, I, I sort of pushed back on that for a long time. Um, I thought everybody's on their own timeline. Um, you know, we're not going to impose that. Um, largely, our data was always showing us that students were taking on around an average of a year, three terms here. We're on a quarter system in Oregon State. And so, you know, I, I wasn't really compelled to impose that, even though I know um, other colleagues across the country did have that. You know, they had a year or a year and a half or whatever that students could explore. And and I started, um, you know, reading and learning a little bit more around the concept of choice architecture. So, you know, um, it, there there is such a thing as um, benefit from boundaries and parameters that you could put in on on students, and there's there's a lot of interesting literature around that. Um, but uh, what I that coupled with the notion of there, I think there's some pretty compelling data that shows a the value of exploration, and b the value of exploration within this productive window, right within this essentially the first maybe two, three, four terms or or semesters that a that a student uh, uh, has there and it, if you get beyond that you're potentially prolonging time to degree and maybe you know um, not completing which is not great that's not desirable and so you know we decided to um, impose this explore in four and what it does is it just puts more boundaries and more parameters around the experience so that students coming in know, okay, I've got basically a calendar year, right? So if I'm starting in fall of 2022, uh, my clock starts then. And by the end of fall of 2023, I should be connected with uh, a, an academic college, an academic major uh, to be able to you know, be on a pathway towards my degree, hopefully maybe reap the benefits of being in an academic college, whether that's scholarships or targeted um, guidance towards a particular degree plan. And um, so, you know, knowing that most of our students were taking an average of three terms and were falling within that window anyway, we thought, well, for the students who, you know, tended to hang on a little longer, why not give them some boundaries? And, you know, we, (laughs) we, we don't, uh, it's not a hard, like, we'll kick you out, right? It's, uh, if we hit that fourth term, and you're not there yet, we're gonna, we're gonna scale up, right? So we, what we do is we ask students to petition to stay with us if they need to, and they have to explain why they need more time. And, uh, you know, very more often than not, it's, I got it down to two or three majors, and I know that I just need a, a, another term or two to, to figure it out. Sometimes it's um, an academic hurdle that they're trying to clear. College or major has an entrance requirement that they need to that they need to clear. Uh, but one of the things that we've noticed since we've implemented this is we had about I'd say about a fifteen percent increase in students declaring within like their first three terms. And um, so the the idea to get them connected with a college and major sooner tended to be tended to bear out for us. Yeah, and you were quoted, I think, um, regarding the Explorer in Four, and you said it's a good it's good to reflect on your experiences and how those things are fitting with your interests and values and skills. And if taking a course helps you realize you don't want to do something, that's valuable, and it helps you in the long run get to the right place. And so I think that was a great you know, summation of, 
of that program. And I guess with that, if you have students that, you know, because you might, some advisors might say, well, I try to tell my students, you know, go to the career center, or you should do X, Y, and Z during these different months throughout the year. And some will do and others don't. Um, <laughs> is there any <laughs> accountability uh, with, with that? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, you know, students make choices, right? So they uh, they get to choose their uh, how they're going to invest in this process. And and what we try to do is is encourage them to be active and strategic. You know, and so you can do that within. Um, trying to think of how I want to phrase this. Uh, you can do that without putting sort of overt pressure on students. You know. Uh, you can kind of nudge them along. And so let's say we get two or three terms into this and the needle's not moving. Okay, let's sit down and figure out what you've tried, what, uh, what meaning you've taken from those experiences, and what you haven't tried that you think might be valuable. Um, one of my trusted employees um, uh, from a, a few years ago um, Jennifer Leach, Dr. Jennifer Leach, who's, who's now down at a private school in Texas, um, came up with this concept that we still utilize today. We call it our exploration to-do list. And all it does is it, it provides a menu of choices, right? Different things that students have used over the years to help them with their exploration. So taking classes, right? Getting lots of voices in the conversation, whether that's friends or family or professors or other advisors, um, job shadows and uh, informational interviews, um, experiential opportunities on campus. And that is something that, you know, we introduce early on, but we will definitely ramp up. If a student is getting further into the process and they're just not moving along, we'll, we'll revisit that and say, okay, what have you tried? What haven't you tried? What do you think is going to be helpful for you moving forward? Thank you for that. Um, it was fun to um, look at your transformational learning article uh, in academic advising today. Um, my degrees in adult education, and and so it was fun to to read some of that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how you see that uh, unfolding in your advising practice? Yeah. Um, thanks for that, Craig. You know, I, I, um, I really had a, the, the process of writing that article was a really valuable ex learning experience for me in that it helped me crystallize a lot of different sources, I think, that were informing my thinking about working with this particular population. Um, those who are active in working with undecided exploring students know the great debt that we owe to Virginia Gordon. And, uh, you know, Dr. Gordon's um, models and, and theories and ideas around working with exploring students, um, I think, were are, are just incredibly profound. And I saw a lot of connection and resonance with the ideas around self-authorship and and transformative learning and and the idea of meaning making. To me, decision-making is a process of meaning-making, right? If you're thinking about where you want to take your academic journey and, and how you want to shape that pathway, um, you are making sense of the world around you and defining uh, your likes, dislikes, and, 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 and where, how you're connecting with the world and where you want to invest in it. And so this, uh, this, um, you know, this conflation of the model uh, that Dr. Gordon puts forward and and the the concepts and ideas about 
strategies for working with exploring students really uh, connected to me with the idea of helping students move from sort of external definition and them being dictated to, to them making their own substantive decisions about where their journey is taking them. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's how I got into that. And that's, that's, uh, you know, how I think it influences my conversations with students. You know, it's all very much situated in them, you know, what's, uh, what, what they're taking away from the experience, um, what dissonance they're, they're experiencing as they take certain classes or, you know, find themselves in this academic environment in this particular institution. And, you know, how is that sitting with them? Are the pros outweighing the cons? You know, are they, are they finding um, value in, in, in the experience? And if so, you know, how do we amplify that? How do we, we magnify that? And if not, you know, what else can we do to, <laughs> to help you get into a space where you're, um, you're enjoying what you're doing and happier about, about your journey? One of our PhD students is is interested in 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 looking at how students make meaning of uh, their advising within advising, I think, uh, and so I think it's really fun to think about Mesero's uh, framework and how you know a student who's being fun like confronted about their fundamental beliefs about something uh, in their coursework or or you know somewhere else on campus, and uh, just the potential to see them kind of cycle through that and you know what perhaps an advisor can do to facilitate that meaning making learning etc yeah it's um you know especially with the the population that i i work with which is largely you know largely tr traditional age i guess you would say you know uh not far from high school uh you know um but uh where they are developmentally and and how they engage with this it's it's such to me kind of goes back to why i got into this it's so it's such interesting teaching and learning that happens in those in those those conversations those one-on-one -on -one conversations with students and um, it gives a chance to kind of do plus one learning right the challenge and support kind of thing where you know as they're as they're talking about what they're taking away from a given class or a given set of classes or experiences that they have outside of the uh, outside of the classroom to ask them compelling questions about that <laughs> and to ask them to um you know maybe maybe think about it in ways they haven't i think that that's a, a way to inspire that growth right that um that comes from um the the pedagogy that stems out of like baxter magolda and the, those self-authorship um ideas that uh, you know, that she put forward coming out of Mesero. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that stuff is fascinating. And I think it, it situates well within the advising office for working with exploring students, for sure. Yeah, I love thinking about the advising um, space as being a site of adult learning. And I think even I could do more to, to theorize, you know, about this and to build off of the, the work in adult learning. Um, Certainly others too. I just uh, think it's fascinating. So it was yeah. fun to see that you'd already done this, you know, more than a decade ago. So. And Carrie, because in that article, and we'll include a, a link in the show notes to that article, you, you connected it with uh, music and, 
and the mashup. Uh, can you talk about what the mashup is with music and because you were connecting it as a metaphorical connection with with major decision making? Right. Well, you know, uh, so as I say in the article, and as anyone who you know has any sort of contact with me in social media, I mean, I'm I'm pretty <laughs> pretty singular focused in terms of my interest. It's like this stuff and and music and dogs. You know, I'm I'm pretty simple in that respect. And so, yeah, the that's um, where I invest a lot of my free time is is really listening to music and going to see live shows and things like that. And I, you know, the, the specific reference that I make there is to the band girl talk was this guy who just, you know, takes all of these confluence of samples of popular music and constructs something entirely new out of it. And in a way, you know, the connection I'm making is to how uh, an individual constructs their, their path and their life in a way. I mean, you students are sort of synthesizing input from a lot of different data points and data points that are really familiar, like family and culture and, you know, classroom learning and outside the classroom learning and popular and, and, and popular media and things like that. And taking all that and using that to define themselves in relationship to the world. And so, you know, I, I just, I just love this idea of, of, creativity coming from something that already exists and and emerging as something really new and you know when when you talk about individual students there's there's of course familiarity across the students we work with you know you can say oh this is a familiar situation to me what the students is going through i've seen this before but it is still unique it is still not exactly the same right it's still uh something uh dynamic and energetic about what that individual student is going through. And so, you know, what I see in, in, in relation to a creative enterprise, whether it's music or even creating where you're going to take your journey, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a connection there between the two for me. Matt, I'm going to skip ahead, but please go back, you know, as, as the conversation flows, but uh, as some of our listeners may know, um, there's, a master's and PhD program at Kansas State University, where I am faculty. And um, recently, I've been in, embarking upon a, a project with several others, and we're going to have a, a paper published in the Nakata Journal um, this this upcoming issue on looking at the graduate certificate programs in academic advising. And so, I'm particularly interested in in, in hearing more about the course you, uh, I understand, co-developed and co teach uh, at Oregon State. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind talking to us about that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Thanks, Craig, for calling that out. Um, it's been a another great learning experience for me. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Um, the very, very first iteration of this class. So the, the program is this College Student Services Administration program, master's degree program at Oregon State. The very first iteration of this class was actually created and taught by Dr. Karen Sullivan Vance, who's now at the Nakata Executive Office. So Karen used to be a colleague here at OSU and is also a graduate of the same program I am. And uh, she did the, the first iteration of this. Um, and then um, when she moved on to another institution, uh, myself and my colleague, Jeff Malone, who works at, at, at OSU, kind of uh, took up the mantle. And um, so it's, it's evolved over the years. Um, uh, the, the premise behind the class is to 
um, talk about academic advising as a functional area to a degree, but also to talk about academic advising skills as they relate to other areas of, of student affairs um, and, and higher education. And, you know, recognizing that our program is, is going to put students into a variety of different student affairs type settings, but inevitably they're going to encounter situations that uh, have resonance with academic advising, whether they're working in housing, whether they're working in, in um, student life, uh, things like that. And so we wanted to talk about the, the skills and, and the concepts around it. Um, what we've seen over the years is more and more students want to get into academic advising, which is pretty cool. I'm, I'm a fan of that. Um, but yeah, so we have this, this two credit graduate course and um, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of getting ready to teach it again in spring term and get to talk about um, history and theory and philosophy and advising. We get to talk about equity and social justice issues as it, as it relates to academic advising settings. Um, students get a chance to think about their own philosophy in relationship to working with students in an advising capacity. They get a chance to um, think about approaches and how you might uh, take an advising approach and uh, apply it to a particular population of students. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it's it's been a really engaging learning community that we've we've had a chance to uh, work with over the years and uh, had a lot of fun with it. And Craig, you're mentioning the 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 issue. When does that come out? Um, I think June ish. <laughs> OK, perfect. <laughs> Going through copy edits now. So uh, we're pretty excited. I mean, I um, think. uh hopefully Carrie is okay with me saying this, but like we requested his syllabus and that actually the, the, the syllabi that we reviewed are actually not part of this paper. We have sort of a macro paper and then a micro paper. The macro paper is focused on the programs and then the micro paper is looking at these like kind of foundations of advising courses, what, however they're titled and specifically kind of diving in to to those um and there are there are new this our review was a couple years ago but i've told carrie this but um i'll say that one of the really cool things about your syllabus carrie is that you have an emphasis on social justice that like none of the other syllabi did uh at least not explicitly so um we were really impressed by that and um also a little bit surprised that others didn't, but um, I think people are becoming more aware of the importance of, of social justice work and how it's not this separate thing on the side, but how it undergirds, uh, you know, our work with all students. Yeah. Advisors are definitely, um, well, and I'll say any student affairs practitioners are definitely on the front lines of, of um, you know, hearing about why, attention to equity and social justice issues are important. You know, they get to hear about the the barriers that students are encountering and particularly the barriers that historically marginalized populations encounter in spaces like, like mine, like Oregon State University and other uh, predominantly white institutions across the country um, where, you know, they were created <laughs> not for the broader population and yet the broader population is coming into these spaces and we need to adjust and we need to change. And if advisors can be um, eyes and ears 
um, on those experiences and advocate for students and advocate for change. Um, I think that's so, so important. Um, I want to give a lot of credit, um, you know, Craig, to um, what you call out. The re one of the reasons why this um, is a focal point of our particular class in our syllabus is um, certainly the interest of me and Jeff when Jeff and I has co-taught with me. Um, you know, this, this is something that we're really passionate about, but it is a centerpiece of the program too, the College Student Services Administration program. They have a, um, they're, they're housed in our School of Language, Culture and Society in our College of Liberal Arts, which is a little, little different, right? Um, but they're, you know, in, in a department that houses women, gender and sexuality studies and ethnic studies and anthropology. Um, and so the, the school itself has a real concern towards social justice. And I think the students coming into the program are very attracted to those ideas. Um, and if, if for, for whatever reason I hadn't integrated in the syllabus, I would have been called out on it, which was the right thing to do anyway, you know, uh, th they would have asked for it. And so um, even though, you know, at this point we've got um, like a targeted week where we're focusing on it, it's really, it, it's a through line. It runs throughout the entirety of the conversation, even as we're talking about the history of advising the voices that have and have not been in the conversation, you know, as we progress through the term, we're constantly um, trying to bring in a variety of those different voices through uh, through literature, right? Through some of the stuff that's uh, uh, come out of late in the Cotta Journal and the Cotta Review, um, through the the social justice or pocket guide that came out a few years ago. We use that in the class through our discussion of the core competencies for academic advising. Um, you know, we, uh, we do try to uh, reference this topic extensively. I'm teaching uh, foundations of advising at K-State now, and I taught it for the first time in the summer and I kind of did an overhaul of the course. And, you know, and this is a controversial decision, but I made half of the class, the conceptual aspect and then just um, informational and relational. And it's not because I don't think those are important, but they you know, are covered in other courses. Um, and when you think about the foundations of the field, it's, it's largely conceptual. So I have a whole like half of that on justice and equity issues. And so uh, one, uh, this is just so timely. I, I texted a uh, CJ Venable yesterday because I find their chapter uh, their chapter with, I want to give credit, Kyle, um, in, in the LGBT book and the students, like, were, I was so proud of them. They were, they were grappling with, with things they hadn't thought of before and engaging with, with the issues and engaging with each other's sort of take on the issues. And it was just really, really cool to see that. And so I text, I texted CJ and let them know that, um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was fun to see, you know? Yeah. Well, let's shout out CJ and set, shout out the whole book. Um, I gotta tell you, Craig, my, uh, we've been doing a common reading with my staff. Um, I, I have a grad assistant who, um, I brought back the book from, uh, the annual conference in, in Cincinnati for everyone. And, and I have a grad assistant who's in uh, her second year and she's in the process of putting together a portfolio and, um, has uh, was all over the book and uh, said, I'm, I want to focus on this, um, particularly with a strong interest towards um, career issues. Um, but uh, 
you know, we ended up just saying, well, let's do a common read of it over the course of this term. And so we've been taking a couple chapters a week. And uh, yeah, that chapter by uh, CJ and Kyle, um, you know, was is just outstanding. So if you haven't looked at that, please, please do. <laughs> it, it hardly went through any sort of their first draft of it was like so amazing that it was just sort of superficial, like edits and suggestions along the way. Uh, you know, obviously anybody who knows CJ or their work knows their brilliance and uh, right. Uh, it just, it was so, I'm, I'm so proud of the the book and, and the, the many authors who just did a, a, a such a standout job. Um, so thank you for that. I didn't mean to like make this to be an endorsement of my book or anything, but it's, it is nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. I was going to, I was going to figure out a way to work it in sometime during the, <laughs> during the conversation. So nice segue. Yeah. I'm still waiting, Craig, for you to send me the, uh, signed I copy. Know, I have so much guilt. It's actually, his copy is, is right over here. And the other day I even like figured out what I wanted to write in it and I couldn't find a damn pen. <laughs> so when I went to go visit Manhattan, I brought the book so he could sign it and then he didn't get a chance to. So I was like, I'll just leave it here. Just mail it back to me. And um, yeah, it's March now. <laughs> I will but, get on that. This yeah. Week. That's a lot of pressure on you now, Craig, to come up with something really good. I know. <laughs> and now people are going to listen to this and know Craig. It's needs to gonna be his book. Matt. Enjoy. <laughs> right. <Matt and> Craig. <laughs> best, best wishes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you were mentioning um, you, in this pocket guide, you've got your book, Nakata Review, Nakata Journal. And I guess this is a question for both of you. If anyone's listening, it's like, what are those? How would how would you describe those? Uh, wow. Um, yeah, what a great, great question. Uh, it's um, all these spaces where we can um, share our stories and our ideas and, and uh, you know, engage with the discourse of the field. Right. Um, this is uh something that I love about Nakata is they provide all these opportunities and, and um, you know, the, I'll, I'll maybe connect this a little bit to the, the program that I'm involved with this, this college student services administration program, you know, it, it sort of centers its curriculum around scholar practitioner, right. Being a, being a well-informed scholar practitioner. So you, not only are you, getting the practice of working in student affairs and advising settings, but you're also, you know, engaging with the literature and the discourse of the field. And I think you find that with Nakata too, you find varying degrees of comfort, but, you know, appreciating the engagement with research model that Dr. Troxell has put forward, you know, with the, with the research center, um, everyone has a, an entry point and a space to do that. And I think about the same thing with writing too. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily fancy myself um, a, an active scholar in the same way that that, that Craig is, um, but I have opportunities there. Whether it's you know um, conference or proposals or writing for um, you know the the uh, academic advising today. Or, you know, as a case uh, was with this article that, that you both have referenced, uh, writing for the Clearinghouse way back when. And now, you know, being able to have the Nakata Review and the Nakata Journalist spaces uh, for that. Um, they are they are different. They're different venues to uh, share ideas. Um, and, you know, I think there's still from ref some refinement happening in terms of what happens in what space. Um, and Craig, you may be able to speak to that a little bit more because I know you've been involved with both spaces. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a, a good thing that we've got going in Nakata for sure. 
Yeah, both within Nakata and, you know, Nakata members, you know, doing other things. So, um, you know, we've got now the Journal of Academic Advising coming out of Indiana University and uh, the Mentor, which has been around for for 20 years um, out of Pennsylvania. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's different kind of venues for different things. And so, you know, we talked about, you know, edited books. Um we had um, one of Peter, Dr. Peter Hagen had a solo authored book, uh, which is not super common in our field. So that was pretty exciting. I believe Dr. Virginia Gordon was probably the last one who did that, but I could be, you know, forgetting some. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the Nakata Review is is up and coming, and they've got some really exciting special issues coming out. I don't know how many of those are public, so I'm not going to say what they are. Uh, but I learned about one of them yesterday, and I was thrilled about it. Uh, so, yeah, just some some really good uh, uh, stuff coming in, in, in the way of scholarship. And, you know, I, I'll get on my soapbox for just a minute. Everybody, and this is like paraphrasing something that my chair had said and wrote in, in, in her book, but everybody has something to say. So there is something that, you know, you're experiencing in your practice that other people can, can stand to learn from. And so I just encourage everybody to, to write. I don't know that everybody has to publish in the Nakata Journal or Nakata whatever, but, but I think uh, it's, it's, it's good uh, scholarly habits and, you know, it doesn't have to be a solo journey, you know, so collaboration is is the name of the game for me. I mean, I have published solo works, but honestly, I prefer collaboration. And uh, one of the most fun things that I got to do this past year was to publish with some of our PhD students. And that was just, it's a thrill. Like, technically, I'm the teacher and they're the student, but like, I learned so much from them. And, uh, and I hope they learned, you know, from each other and, and maybe me too, but it was, uh, yeah, just, you know, we, we need our, for our field to continue to grow, we need people to grow it. Um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, um, the late Dr. Lee Schaefer there. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> It's a, it's a good one to be on. And, you know, I, you, you reference, I think, which is, we, we talked about CJ, I think this is the uh, Nakata review upcoming sort of special issue around um, humanities and, and, and uh, concepts from humanities and the advising, which of course, you know, the former English major in me, that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, that's, that's how I made meaning of academic advising uh, in the first place is this is a story and I'm, <laughs> you know, in front of me and, and uh, you know, I get a chance to engage with that story. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I love it. I'm thrilled about that special issue. Uh, yeah. And I just didn't know how much was known about it, but uh, my, my, my good friend, Dr. Drew Pierway, I, I believe is, is co-editing it as well and couldn't be in the hands of, of two better people. So I'm just, yeah, really excited about it. So what I'm getting from both of you is there's something for everyone, uh, whether it's the journal, the review, pocket guide, book, uh, academic advising today, there's something there. But speaking of Nakata, like, Carrie, you've been super involved in Nakata through the years. And uh, when the, you're also part of the Sustainable Nakata Leadership Committee, what, what is that committee doing? 
Ah, that group has been so fun. Um, so th the big project that that group is working on right now is, and it's, it's so cool because, um, that it's coming to fruition because, um, so one of my roles, um, that I had uh, a number of years back was, um, I was, uh, administrative division representative. Uh, and uh, as part of that, I was, uh, on the council and, um, I think it was either in its first year or second year, but the sustainable leadership committee had just been created as I was coming on board with that. And Dr. Casey Self from Arizona state was the first um, chair of that group. And one of their, their, were you I, really? I was on the original when it was still a task force. Yeah. It became a committee. Yeah. And so you, Craig, you know this, that one of the notions of that group or one of the projects put on their plate was onboarding of leaders and sustaining leaders, right? So how do we, how do we make sure that as leaders coming on uh, into the organization that they, they are comfortable and they know what's going on, they get a sense of their roles and responsibilities. And also how do we perpetuate that so that we've got um, a good base of, of, of leadership for the organization. And so uh, this has been in the works for years, but um, it, it this uh, we're developing um, with uh, the help of Alicia Schaefer and the executive office um, these this Canvas modules, basically course to help onboarding leaders have a better sense of better sense of the organization give them an opportunity to think about how their particular leadership role and the unit that they're leading sits within the broader mission, vision, values of the organization, as well as talk about leadership skills, leadership responsibilities that they have, and, and giving them a better sense of, of what the job entails. You know, how do you lead volunteers? How does your work intersect with the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice? How does your work intersect with the concept of, of the, the, the research center, right? And um, the, the hope here is that if uh, leaders can start engaging with the shortly after they get elected in their position, by the time they get to the, the annual conference, when they actually assume the mantle of leadership, that they have a really strong sense of what they're being asked to do, which is a very different thing from what historically was has happened, which is you show up at the annual conference and all of a sudden you're in you're in it and you maybe have an hour or two orientation somewhere along the line or some sort of uh, meeting with your executive office representatives, and so it is creating a much more robust and informed um, situation for our incoming leaders. And I, I think the ultimate goal of this group is not only to, you know, launch this, uh, platform and resource for new leaders, but also to have something for ongoing leaders. So kind of a, you know, if this is 101, you know, 102 or whatever down the road. Can you talk related to that? Can you talk about your experience, uh, experiences, I should say, uh, with ELP emerging leaders program? Yeah, that's been a joy. Um, I, you know, when I came off the board, I was thinking about what what I wanted to do with my engagement with the association. Um, I've I've talked often with folks about my my bandwidth for Nakata, you know, because I know there are, there are superstars out there that have their hands in every little bit of of Nakata and are super active. And you know, with with my particular role at my campus and and my other responsibilities, I can usually find like one or two things, right, that I that I can really engage with. And so, coming off the board, I'm like, where do I want to invest that? And um, 
I decided, you know, I uh, maybe have something to get back here. And so let me, let me get into the ELP program. And, um, what a, what a great, <laughs> what a great experience it's been for, for me. Um, I've got a great mentee, Philip Agu- Aguanagua, who is, is now just got elected as the, uh, chair for the undecided exploratory studies advising community. So, um, super, super happy about that. And, and Philip's been doing amazing work and our whole cohort in our class just is doing really, really interesting things. And so, you know, Craig, you talked about your, um, opportunity to engage with your PhD students on this scholarship project and how much you learn from them. I think that's the same thing. Anytime we gather as an ELP crew, um, you know, we're, we're learning so much from each other and, and, uh, that's a, that's a pretty privileged space to be in. Yeah, I would encourage anyone that's listening to this and you're going to your region conference for Nakata, there's probably going to be a session on the Emerging Leaders Program. So go check that out. I mean, you'll hear from either past and current emerging leaders or mentors and, you know, really consider applying for that program. And to tag team on that comment, there's probably also a published with Nakata session. So go to that session too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll plug everything Nakata wise during those sessions. Um, And as we wind down with this interview, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, that, that you love music. So what was the last live show you went to and do you still play um, bass guitar? I do. Uh, well, I'll start with the bass guitar because this is, this is, I think, a cool thing about there's this, this whole, uh, across, at least across the states, there's this whole group of Nakata bass players, you know, from Art Esposito on the East yeah. Coast to, you know, Wendy Troxell and Sean Bridgen, you know, with the Peter executive. Hagen. Peter Hagen plays bass, you know, yeah. there's just a ton of us out there so somehow we all landed in academic advising i don't know what you there's probably a paper in there somewhere craig so I'll, i think so in the kind yeah. of musicians yeah yeah um so uh i was much more active uh in my younger spry days with that but i still uh, still tool around a little bit with it but yeah the the concert pieces um uh, and and music pieces definitely a big part of it um so i got one on the docket tonight i get to go see jason isbell in, in portland but um the last show that i went to was actually uh by m- the artist who put out my favorite record of last year um she's a pakistani american uh, artist named aruj aftab um from she's from new york and she uh does this sort of really interesting classical jazz world imp- music influenced hybrid and uh I've I've been uh, mesmerized by her since I heard her record last year and been lucky as we've gotten back into the habit of being able to go to see shows and, you know, gotten to a place, uh, you know, in the in this pandemic where we can actually get out and about. I've gotten to see her twice and it's been spectacular both times. So that's been that's been awesome. And well, maybe if there's other Nakata members that play various instruments, maybe there's a live concert at a conference coming up soon. Maybe that can happen. But Carrie, this is a great interview. If anyone has any questions, they want to connect with you, what's the best way? Sure. Um, yeah, probably uh, connect with me through uh, the email, which you can find on on my website, uh, the University Exploratory Studies Program at Oregon State University. You can track me down through there. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook and I, I Twitter and Instagram as well. The Twitter is uh, at osu underscore uesp so it's like my official office but that's where i'm i'm hanging out in that space all right sounds good this has been fun 
I love this interview, Carrie and Craig. Thanks for joining me on this. Um, you both take care. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Matt. Carrie, I think a lot of listeners received great tips hearing about Explore and Four and also your article on transformational theory. And thank you for being on, Craig. Thanks for stepping in again to help out with the guest host duties. Last but certainly not least, let's chat with Ryan Sheckle from Texas Tech about the 2022 annual Nakata Conferences Art Exhibition. All right, so let's welcome back to the podcast, uh, past podcast guest and multi-time podcast guest, Ryan Sheckle from Texas Tech University. Usually we're doing a yearly interview, but Ryan's not on for that this time. Ryan, first, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> so I hear there's an art exhibition happening at the Nakata Annual Conference in Portland. Is that true? Yeah, so it's uh, it's been a, a project that's been in the works for a long time. And uh, like a lot of artwork, um, it's something that starts as an idea, sometimes often, you know, very vague and unformed. Um, and then, you know, you get through the process and you can think about realities like media and uh you know approach or uh, whatever the the medium might be that you'll eventually express it in the world um and uh and this was something that nearly happened uh as far as i understand it was a possibility um that was presented um for the san juan um annual conference that didn't happen uh because of covid um, but, but this is this has been something that's been part of uh, the community of advisors that I've known that I've met and some that I haven't um, for a while now. And uh, and we've finally found a perfect opportunity, a city like Portland, um, you know, after all of the, the stuff everyone's been through during the pandemic, the uncertainties and the disruptions, um, but especially a, a chance to you know really open things up um, and, and think differently about what we do. Um, and so that's where. That's where this really started to land as a possibility is that we were looking at a real a real chance to see it realized. Yeah, so this is something that has never been done before at any annual conference for Nakata, right? Yeah, or you know maybe any other. Um, yeah, I haven't been to a lot of other conferences, um, especially higher ed conferences. Um, I, I know that of course there are higher ed conferences for the arts. Um, uh, but outside of those, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but one thing I do know is that there are uh, creative types, artists, um, you know, folks who do a lot of things and have real um, uh, creative and philosophical uh, and um, typically traditional art expressions um, in all kinds of communities. All right. Uh, we often think of ourselves as an advising community, and certainly that's our primary identity, but we're more complex than that. And we have folks who've been uh, involved in all sorts of cre uh, creative activities. It wasn't too long ago that there was uh, a choir at the annual conference for Nakata. And so we express ourselves in a lot of different ways. And this is just one of those. Yeah. And it, so it's called an art exhibition, but I think some people might also hear art exhibit. Are those the same thing? Are they different? Well, I think it's a little bit of semantics. And, and for those who know me, boy, can I get bogged down in that? Um, but uh, usually an exhibit is something that's a little bit more permanent where an exhibition is a little bit more experiential. It's a, uh, uh, it's a little bit less, um, I don't know. It's a little bit less in, in line with like the, the long-term museum type of displays of art. 
Um, and so an exhibit is usually something that lasts longer where an exhibition is usually a short term. And certainly, you know, the, the feel uh, of an annual conference um, is that that short term experience uh, that makes a, a lasting difference in our lives and in our practice. And the same thing is true of exhibitions. And so we've chosen that framework um, because it won't be long term. Um, but the uh, the convention center, uh, the Oregon Convention Center has an exhibit of public artwork um, that's uh, more long term. And that's a little differentiation there um, in the, the language anyway. And in my experience, um, having been an advisor in our school of art uh, for nine years, um, is that exhibitions come and go. Um, and this is just part of the ongoing conversation. Yeah. And so you were mentioning that this was a discussion that happened a couple of years ago. It, it was something that might have happened at the Puerto Rico uh, conference. Was it really close to, to actually coming to fruition at that conference? Well, close, you know, is uh, it's another subjective term. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, when a formal proposal is drafted and presented to the uh, annual conference advisory board, um, that, that's a really formal step. Um, most of what I was involved in was very informal uh, conversations at annual conferences in the evenings, maybe offsite, uh, you know, we, with people who are like-minded uh, is an important part. Um, but it's, it's the same thing uh, if you think about the scholarship uh, of advising. Um, you know, a lot of times we have questions. Uh, we have interests, lines of inquiry that pop up from our daily lives, our daily practice, or, or something that an idea that we ran across. Um, and someone goes, oh, that'd be great for a, a conference proposal or, uh, you know, a presentation or it'd be a wonderful post poster session or maybe a, an article. Like getting to that formal process, there's some work there. Um, and certainly I benefited from the work of others, um, just like anyone who's involved in the scholarship of advising or any other kind of um, scholarly activity would benefits from uh, others. And I did a bit of literature review uh, looking over that past proposal. And there wasn't a lot to edit out of it. There wasn't a lot of change. Um, but the justification, um, I think, comes from the community, uh, folks who do advising work, who are part of Nakata, um, but are also creators. Yeah. And but kind of going off of that, I mean, you might have people that are like, come on, Ryan, should we really have something like that at the annual conference? Does it really make sense? How, how do you convince people like that? Well, I mean, again, um, I think about advisors. You know, I've, I've been an advisor or been in advising for going on 20 years. Uh, had the benefit of being an advising administrator for the last six um, and and getting to think about um, the range of people I've met just in my own work, just on my own campus. Um, there are times when I think advisors, when they look at what's presented to them in uh, the association or in the scholarship of advising, um, they don't see an on-ramp for them. Um, and it may be because of how long they've been doing it. It may be a little bit of imposter syndrome. Uh, it may be they just, you know, haven't found the right person to have a conversation with yet. But it also might be because they haven't been presented with a new way of thinking about the work that they do. The time that I spent in our School of Art, I heard a lot, especially in higher education, about how the arts can be misunderstood or undervalued in the traditional um, publish or perish kind of mindset that research with a capital R, the only kind of um, scholarly activity that generates funding. Um, those are the things that, you know, are legitimized and valued. Um, and I, you know, not to say that those aren't important, valuable things for higher education um, and, and for our world, uh, but there's a lot of other ways uh, that people come to understand themselves. Um, you know, on the, the website um, for the art exhibition, there's a, 
a reference to Clive Cazot's art research and philosophy from 2017, where he builds on this idea that for years, inquiry regarding the relationship between scholarship, knowledge, and the arts really shows how art, especially that immediacy of a performance or of a painting or an experience, um, can interact powerfully with traditional structures of knowledge generation. Um, and that's definitely something that we wanted to see happen with this art exhibition, is that we kind of have a traditional understood approach to what these conferences are like. And that traditional understood approach, while certainly continuing to evolve and include more perspectives than just say the social or hard sciences, including uh, humanities and, and stuff, um, it wasn't a full picture. And, and I feel like this, while maybe not the norm, certainly, um, it starts to not only draw in people from all perspectives, but it also accentuates this idea that we can think differently. Um, we can understand the world and the work that we do differently. Um, and that there's value in that value alone in taking somebody else's perspective for a moment, looking at it, um, through their eyes and through their work and thinking, how does that inform and influence the way I think about myself and, and the work that we do with students and, and for our institutions and ultimately as scholar practitioners, um, art might be some of the best places where you see idea and action overlap the most. Yeah. And, and it seems like every year at these annual conferences, there's always something that's added, something new. Um, so this, I think, could be like the next thing, right? So if you have this at the Portland conference, I'm assuming it's sort of like a pilot of sorts, maybe something that continues on after Portland to the next conference in Orlando. Well, we definitely had to think that way, right? It, it would be um, in some ways short-sighted to not think about what would this activity be like long-term. Um, is this sustainable? Um, is there real interest there? This is all things that we're um, we're open to. I think the the structure of a pilot um, oftentimes is underappreciated. Uh, we as academic advisors are usually at institutions of um, higher learning where we're exploring concepts and we're testing the waters on these theoretical notions, these suppositions, these hypotheses. Um, maybe some assumptions, and, and we can test those. We can problematize those. We can evaluate. Uh, is this really something that that lasts? Now, a lot of my experience with sort of the, the theory that we're testing here um, is anecdotal and personal, and this is an opportunity to test that, certainly. And, and if the response is um, what we're hoping for, and if the response is strong, then I think that there's an opportunity to consider longer term. What does this look like? I mean, we're going from a, a you know a rich, vibrant, creative city like Portland this year to another very creative space next year. Um, and I, I think that there's a, a lot of energy and interest around, um, you know, expressing ourselves in a whole wide range of things that are not limited to what is expected or what's the norm. Yeah, definitely. Now, if someone's listening, they're like, this sounds really interesting. Maybe I want to submit something. How does one go about that? Sure. So uh, a call um, will be going out or may have already gone out by the time you're listening to this um, via email um, from the executive office to Nakata members. Uh, but there's also a link from the annual conference website uh, to a page that will have the uh, submission form. Uh, where um, artists who have ideas, rough sketches, or completed work, uh, you know, any stage of the, the process. Uh, for anyone who has ever submitted a proposal to an annual conference, you know that your uh, presentation is 
sometimes, but not always, fully ready to go at the time of submission. Uh, so we're open to um, you know some of these artworks still being in process at the time of submission. Uh, but the link will be there from the website, um, and then also will be included in the email that goes out. But again, you know, you can contact me too, and I'd be happy to point anyone in the right direction. We'll not only be looking for people um, who submit artwork for consideration uh, to be selected for this exhibition, but we'll also be looking for volunteers um, for this uh, this process to be a part of it. Um, I've been thrilled to be joined by you know, eight other folks on our annual conference art exhibition action group, as we're calling it. Um, but I know that we'll we'll need lots of help uh, to see this through. Not just people who will walk through the doors and, and take in the artwork, not just people who will submit artwork to be viewed, um, but also people who will help us um, actually put the show up and and staff it and make sure that there are folks there to answer questions. Yeah, and so the types of artwork submissions are we talking like paintings, sketches, sculptures, all of the above? All of the else? above. <laughs> yeah, we've had I've had the the just the absolute joy to meet folks who create all kinds of artwork. Um, you know, from the traditional understood, you know, ceramics and and, and painting um, to multimedia pieces, um, urban sketch artists. Um, you know, I know someone who um, who knits and finds a, a great range of expression and possibility um, in that sort of textile and, and thread work um, artwork approach. Uh, you know, and so we're open to anything that somebody thinks would be appropriate for the overall themes of the conference, um, the ideas behind academic advising. It doesn't have to be a painting of advising. It doesn't have to be a sketch from your campus. It doesn't have to be a photograph of, of something related specifically to a bridge, uh, which is part of the conference theme structure. But, you know, something that does speak to how do you as an advisor think of yourself, think of your work, um, think of what it means to uh, be a part of closing gaps and, uh, you know, bridging uh, people together or even the themes of time, past, present, future. There's a lot to draw from in this conference theme. There's a lot to draw from in our lives as advisors. Uh, and I think those things will inform the work. And it could be any potential type of artwork that you feel is relevant, even even design. Yeah. And so you're mentioning the conference theme. So that one is building bridges, honoring our past, celebrating the present and preparing for the future. Um, and there's a little brief blurb on the annual conference website that kind of describes it a little bit. But like any theme, it's very broad. So sure. I think anything, anything advising wise probably can connect to that theme, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's uh, it's one of the things that I first thought about is uh, almost every art exhibition has some sort of structural framework. Um, it may just be the media type. It may be exclusively a photography exhibition, uh, or it may be more uh, philosophical or thematic in, in, a, in a conceptual sense. Um, but usually they're very open-ended. And that's one of the joys of, of artwork. And it's one of the joys of meeting artists and people who express themselves through creative works um, is they're great at finding those connections. Yeah. And so if someone does submit, um, when's the deadline for them to get that in? Well, we're going to keep this open for about two months. And so typically, uh, if, if well, what we're expecting is if the call goes out around March 15th, that the deadline should be somewhere around the middle of May, um, May 15th, ideally. Um, but again, I want to remind anyone who's thinking about it, that may sound like I only have two months to do something and maybe my process is more three, four months projects. It doesn't have to be fully finished. Right. It can be um, very rough at the time of submission. Uh, we'll have the full timeline on the call and on the website. But, uh, you know, we're looking at something around August, September of being like our full on. Are you ready to go? Is this going to be happening? 
Um, but I do know that there are folks who are often working on conference uh, presentation um, content, uh, you know, even a couple of days or weeks before the conference date. So, um, you know, the finishing touches may be something that you're working on uh, even up until September. You know, the big part is uh, we want to make sure that the, the, the folks who come have um, work that is engaging and interesting and, and complete. Uh, but we also want to make sure that the um, we honor the expectation uh, that people who are submitting artwork have, have done that work and it isn't something that's unfinished. Yeah, and I guess with expectations for the artists, like let's say they do get accepted uh, for their art piece for the art exhibition, are they responsible for getting it to the conference uh, after the yeah, conference we've, is done? We've we thought a lot about that. You know, this is the first time around. Um, you know, it's I think one of the best ways to think about it is it's a small gallery. Um, and small galleries are frequently, especially small local galleries, um, are, are usually working with people who are, are a lot closer. Um, and we know we have folks who might be interested from all around the world. Uh, but given the logistics um, and the sort of pilot nature of testing these waters, um, we decided that it's going to be the responsibility of the artist uh, to get the artwork there. Um, and there's a lot of ways that that can happen. And, and definitely I'm open to discussing those with folks. If, if there's any concern whatsoever, um, about, I don't know, uh, how I will get my work there. Let's talk about it. Um, you know, we have time to sort through that uh, and to make the best decision, but you know, there's going to be some expectation, uh, that we probably can't mount a painting that's six foot by eight foot in the space that we're going to be given. Um, you know, we probably can't do a sculpture that's life-sized of a person. Um, and so if you're working in a uh, large scale, uh, or if you're working in very uh, difficult to transport materials or whatever, that may be, it may, may be a bit of an issue. Um, but the responsibility will be of the artist to get it there in some way, shape or form. And we have some flexibility on that though. Yeah. And let's say I'm an attendee and I'm um, at the art exhibition. And I really like a, a piece of art. It connects with me. It's engaging. Is there an opportunity for attendees to, to purchase something or is it just there just to view? Well, uh, every artist will have the opportunity to decide if they want to uh, donate their artwork to a silent auction to benefit uh, the Nakata scholarships uh, structure for events and annual conferences and so on. Um, so an artist may choose to do that when they submit their artwork. Um, but, you know, if an artist wants to take a different approach, any further sales would be between the artist and their interested parties. Um, but uh, we're really in uh, encouraged uh, by the generosity of folks in the advising community. And we expect that some, if not all, of the artwork will be available for silent auction. And you've know, talked about like the importance and how this really connects to advising. Um, but I guess for you personally, like this is something you're taking on. This is a pilot that hopefully continues on after this. W why is it important for you to try to make this happen? Well, I, ultimately, I, I know how conversations happen around artwork. Um, not just the conversations I've had um, talking to people who create artwork, who also do advising, um, but being in gallery spaces, um, it just, I don't know, it, it puts you in a different place. Uh, and there are times that I think back to some of my first annual conferences, some of my first ever engagement. Um, and it was overwhelming at times, you know, to sit in a presentation from uh, somebody who does just a fantastic job of representing their ideas, maybe the models or the work that they're doing, or, you know, an important concept in the field. And to feel like I'm not there, like it, it, that's not who I am. And I don't know if you want to call it imposter syndrome or, or whatever, but there can be moments of personal disengagement 
um, because either the ideas are big or the distance seems too great or whatever. And just to have a space that openly invites you to think differently, to sort of break those molds. Um, one of my favorite quotes about art comes from uh, Alain de Botton's The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Uh, and he says, we might define art as anything which pushes our thoughts in important yet neglected directions. And I'm like, from that perspective, then advising is a work of art and conference sessions are their own kind of exhibition, right? When, when I submit a proposal to talk about Star Wars and advising theory, am I not creating something that pushes people's minds in neglected yet important directions? Um, to me, philosophically, I feel like art uh, is just another way for advisors to express themselves. And that type of expression is another way for other advisors to think differently about the work that they do. Um, but I do know that it's going to be so radically different than what we're traditionally presented, that there's going to be some fantastic conversations. Um, and that's really what I look forward to the most is just thinking differently and talking differently about advising and advisors and the students we advise and the places we do that work. Yeah. So it'll be, where's Ryan? Oh, he's at the art exhibition area. Go check him out there. He'll be there the entire conference. Just a little bit, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Now, if anyone has any questions, I mean, I know it'll be on the conference website, so we'll include the link in the show notes. But if someone wants to reach out to you because they have further questions, how can they do that? Yeah, I think the easiest way is just to email me at ryan.sheckle at ttu, Texas Tech University, edu, um, or hit me up on Twitter. That's R at R-D-S-C-H-E-C-K-E-L, R-D-Sheckle. Um, I'm on Twitter all the time. Uh, I'd be happy to chat about any of these ideas, um, especially if you're thinking about submitting um, or if you're interested in volunteering. But, you know, even if you're like, I just want to talk more about this art idea um, or any other ideas that you might have. Um, you know, I think that's another thing that's more personally about me is I value so much the ideas and what they represent, the potential and what they can become. And uh, getting to this point where we're actually talking about an art exhibition um, is really thrilling because while it may not last, it may not go on forever and it may not be everybody's cup of tea. Um, just to see an idea so far afield from what we're usually doing um, means that other ideas aren't that far afield anymore. Yeah, and again, to be a, an observer, to kind of see where it started and where it's at right now, to have this conversation and to be able to think where it's going to be in October. Super excited for this. And so I think an early congratulations to you on this and your team. And I look forward to attending and seeing all these pieces of art in October. Thanks, Ryan, for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll see you in October. Thanks, Ryan. The art exhibition sounds like a fascinating idea. And I hope for listeners, you consider submitting a proposal or forwarding it to someone you know to submit. Or even that you're just as excited as I am to be in Portland and attend the art exhibition live. Check out the link in the show notes for more. And we've reached the end of episode 55. Don't forget to follow us on social media and also subscribe to the Adventures in Advising podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Catch up on previous episodes of the podcast and be back here for episode 56. Take care. And as always, keep advising. Oh, 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 oh,